0: Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and capital markets regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on significant developments in corporate governance, in capital markets regulation, and CII's related advocacy activities. This update covers the period from May 2nd to May 30th, 2023. The following is my top 10 list of events over that period. Number 10. On May 3rd, Representative Stephen Horsford of Nevada sent a letter to U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler. The letter expressed concern that the current pace, volume, and breadth of proposals coming out of the commission risks sacrificing being right for being right now. The letter observed that H.R. 2617, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, 2023, included an important provision urging the SEC to redo its economic analysis of the private fund advisor proposal to ensure the analysis adequately considers the disparate impact on emerging minority and women-owned asset management firms. Representative Horsford stresses that although the provision specifically focuses on the potential for unintended consequences of one far-reaching proposal, he expects the commission to consider these factors in each of its proposal's cost-benefit analyses. Accordingly, Representative Horsford encourages the SEC to take two actions, one, reconduct cost-benefit analysis of any proposals which did not originally adequately take into account the specific impact on minority and women-owned firms. And two, consider the aggregate impact and costs of the Commission's 20-plus proposals on minority and women-owned firms. Number nine on May 9th, U.S. House of Representatives Financial Services Committee Chair Patrick McHenry of North Carolina sent a letter to House Appropriations Committee Chair Kay Granger of Texas and ranking member Rosa DeLorio of Connecticut. The letter urged the Appropriations Committee Chair and ranking member to consider prohibiting the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission from using any of its fiscal, 2024 appropriated funds to develop, promulgate, or implement final rules in the following three areas. One, establishing a best execution regulatory framework for brokers, dealers, government securities brokers, government securities dealers, and municipal securities dealers. Number two, setting requirements to standardize climate-related disclosures or establish any other rules relating to ESG, political spending, and or climate disclosures for companies. And three, directly or indirectly, forcing private companies to go public. Number eight, on May 4th, the Business Roundtable announced that it is appealing an April 24th ruling by a federal district judge in Tennessee. The ruling affirmed The U.S. Securities Exchange Commission's authority to roll back rules on proxy advisory firms that had been adopted during the Trump administration. The Business Roundtable press release said, quote, with proxy advisors' influence on the decision-making process of publicly traded companies increasing, there is no basis for the SEC to relax accountability and transparency measures. For these unregulated third party entities, unquote. Business Roundtable also claimed that proxy advisor firms have a track record for providing investors with misleading information. Business Roundtable said the rules would have helped improve the accuracy of information informing proxy vote recommendations. The SEC last July approved amendments that rescinded two provisions. And the rules that the SEC adopted in July 2020 but never enforced. Those provisions required proxy advisory firms to take two actions. One, make their advice available to companies that are the subject of their advice at or before they make the advice available to their clients, and two, provide their clients with notice of any written statements by subject companies regarding the proxy advisor firm's voting advice. SEC Chair Gary Gensler froze the controversial rules soon after joining the commission in 2021. Number seven, on May 10th, nine U.S. Senate Banking Committee Republicans sent a letter to U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission chair, Gary Gensler. The letter expressed concern about the commission's failure to carry out thorough quantitative analyses of the economic impact of its proposals on small and emerging regulated entities as required by law, which has generated regulatory uncertainty that will undoubtedly incite market uncertainty. Letter says the SEC has more than 50 items on its regulatory agenda, many of which would harm small and emerging U.S. businesses and market participants. Letter also accuses the commission of failing to evaluate scalability in its rulemaking agenda and the impact that its rules would have on capital formation, competition, and market efficiency for small and emerging businesses. To evaluate the SEC's rulemakings and their impact on small and emerging businesses, the lawmakers asked Chair Gensler to provide the following three categories of information by June 7th. Number one, all analyses or other records on the economic impact that the proposed climate disclosure rule is expected to have on small and emerging businesses if finalized. Number two, all analyses or other records related to the economic impact that the March 2022 proposed rule on private fund advisors is expected to have on small and emerging businesses if finalized. And number three, a chart or list detailing every rule promulgated or proposed by the SEC since January 20th, 2021, and the approximate dollar amount of the economic impact that each such rule is expected to have on small and emerging businesses if finalized. Number six, on May 15th, eight Senate Democrats sent a letter to Securities Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler. The letter underscored the importance of, and urged the Commission to finalize its March 2022 private funds advisor proposal as soon as practicable, given the continued growth of private funds. Noting that there is limited data on fund size and fund activities and almost no data on the fees assessed by those funds, the Senators argued in their letter that investors need increased transparency more informative and useful data, and prohibitions on abusive and conflicted practices. The Senators also highlighted the proposed requirement that private fund managers distribute quarterly statements with information regarding fees, expenses, and performance of each fund. Senators also expressed support Or the proposed prohibitions on liability waivers by fund advisors or misconduct, inequitable treatment among fund investors, and fees for unperformed services. The letter asserts that such restrictions would address the information imbalance that exists between private fund advisors and investors and prevent private advisors from entering into contractual provisions that are detrimental to their investors. Accordingly, the Senators urged the SEC to finalize the proposal and continue to promote transparency and protect investors in private funds. Number five, in a May 18th letter, the Council of Institutional Investors expressed support for the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board's proposal to replace and approve a group of interim auditing standards originally developed by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants in 2003. Those standards address reasonable assurance, due professional care, professional skepticism, independence, and competence and professional judgment, collectively referred to as the foundational standards of the auditing profession. CI's letter suggests the following four improvements to the PCAOB's proposal. Number one, Further clarifying the proposed auditor's obligation to and role in protecting investors, including requiring training for auditors that focuses on investors as the key customers of the audit, with information on how audits can be designed and executed to be more responsive to investors' needs. Two, amending the existing standard governing the auditor's report to improve the quantity and usefulness of the disclosures of critical audit matters. Three, further clarifying the meaning of present fairly. And four, further accelerating the audit documentation completion date from the proposed maximum of 14 days from the audit report release date to two days. Number four, on May 23rd, the Council of Institutional Investors, together with the CFA Institute and the Healthy Markets Association, sent a letter to the chair and ranking member of the U.S. House of Representatives Financial Services Committee. The joint letter opposed a bill that would override the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission's pending decision to allow temporary no-action relief it granted back in 2017 to expire. That relief Which the SEC staff gave in a letter to the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association allows certain financial service providers to continue to bundle the costs for research with those for trade execution services and avoid registration as an investment advisor. Many institutional investors prefer to shop separately for research and trading services and oppose being compelled to pay for research. They do not want in order to access high performing trading services. Providers counter that the bundled approach ensures broad analyst coverage of the market, particularly among small cap companies. The CII joint letter says We oppose the proposed legislation on the shared belief that separating the decisions of where to trade and where to buy research is in the public interest as it fosters better price discovery and more efficient allocation of resources related to research and trading benefiting investors, including millions of American pension beneficiaries and long-term investors. CIA joint letter also urged Congress to consider the economic impact that a permanent no action letter would have and explain that codifying the no action letter would harm investors. The three groups had sent a similar letter to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission in March, urging the agency to allow the no-action relief granted to the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association in 2017 to expire. In a 45-2 to 2 vote on May 24th, the Committee on Financial Services passed an amendment to the bill that would extend the no-action letter by six months and require the SEC to conduct a study. Absent the passage of that bill by the U.S. Congress or SEC action, the 2017 Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association no action letter is scheduled to expire on July 3rd, 2023. Number three, on May 3rd, the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission approved amendments requiring companies to disclose more granular information about stock repurchases. Currently, companies report a summary of buyback activity for each month. Going forward, investors will have daily data provided on a quarterly basis. That extra information could help investors and researchers monitor the timing in terms of buybacks in relation to the sale of equity compensation or the timing of performance milestones. The frequency of buyback disclosure was perhaps the most hotly contested aspect of the rule. The SEC had initially proposed a one day turnaround. The final rule dropped that in response to company feedback and generally maintains the quarterly schedule. For each day, the table would include six items one, the class of shares, two, average price paid per share, three, total number of shares purchased, including the total number of shares purchased as part of a publicly announced plan, four, Aggregate maximum number of shares that may be yet be purchased under a publicly announced plan. Five total number of shares purchased on the open market. And six total number of shares purchased that are intended to qualify for the safe harbor in SEC rule 10B 18. And separately, the total number of shares purchased pursuant to a plan that is intended to satisfy the affirmative defense conditions of rule 10B 5 1C. To shed more light on any possible advantageous stock trades by corporate executives, companies will be required to include a checkbox preceding their tabular disclosures. That checkbox will show whether certain officers and directors purchased or sold shares that are the subject of a share repurchase plan within four business days before or after the announcement of that plan. Furthermore. Narrative disclosures about stock repurchases would be expanded to include two items. One, the objectives or rationales for share repurchases and the process or criteria used to determine the amount of repurchases. And two, any policies and procedures relating to purchases and sales of a company's securities during a repurchase program by its officers and directors, including any restriction on such transactions. Notably, companies also will have to report quarterly on their adoption and termination of Rule 10b-5-1 trading plans. On March 31, 2022, CII had submitted a comment letter on the proposal, which walks through a brief discussion of why strong transparency of buybacks is an appropriate policy outcome and consistent with CII's membership-approved policies. While SEC Chair Gary Gensler and Commissioners Carolyn Crenshaw and Jaime Lizarraga voted for the amendments, Commissioners Hester Peirce and Mark Ueda did not support them. Chair Gensler said that through these disclosures, investors will be able to better assess issuer buyback programs. And the disclosures also will help lessen some of the information asymmetries inherent between issuers and investors in buybacks. Commissioner Peirce criticized the amendments for being overly granular. She said disclosure of daily repurchase information will bury investors in an avalanche of trivial information, a result that is hardly conducive to informed decision making. Commissioner Peirce also criticized the cost of implementing the amendments and their lack of accommodations for small and foreign private companies. Commissioner Ueda echoed Commissioner purse's concerns about mandating that foreign private companies make quarterly filings to report share repurchases regardless of their home country's disclosure requirements. Commissioner Ueda said, this change fundamentally upends the Commission's long-standing and bipartisan approach of largely deferring to the disclosures made by foreign private issuers pursuant to their home country reporting requirements. Mr. Ueda also said the amendment's new requirement was such a drastic shift in the SEC's regulatory philosophy that it warranted a separate rulemaking. Number two, on May 12th, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Texas Association of Business and the Longview Chamber of Commerce filed a lawsuit in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Lawsuit was blocked. The U.S. Securities Exchange Commission from implementing its recently approved stock repurchase disclosure rules. The lawsuit challenges the SEC's rules under the Administrative Procedure Act and the U.S. Constitution. The lawsuit argues that the agency's mandatory disclosure requirements not only risk the public airing of important managerial decisions, but also compel speech in violation of the First Amendment, U.S. Chamber Executive Vice President, Chief Policy Officer Neil Bradley, commented that, quote, the SEC stock buyback rule doesn't protect investors. Instead, it puts the thumb on the scale to discourage buybacks, despite the fact that the repurchasing of shares improves returns for savers and investors across the economy, unquote. U.S. Chamber notes that the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 posed a 1% tax on stock buybacks, and that a provision in President Biden's fiscal 2023 budget would prohibit company executives from selling their company shares for three years after the conclusion of a share repurchase program. The accompanying U.S. Chamber's press release said the proposal would limit or prohibit stock buyback risk, interfering with company governance, planning, and decision-making, thereby reducing the ability of companies to manage value. Reacting to litigation in an op-ed for the Financial Times, columnist Brooke Masters wrote, quote, more of such sunshine around buyback programs would reduce the heated arguments they generate by helping investors differentiate between the good and the bad, unquote. And the number one most significant development corporate governance capital markets regulation during the period from May 2nd to May 30th occurred back on May 2nd when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a bill that requires the Florida State Board of Administration and the asset managers it hires to make investment and proxy voting decisions based solely on pecuniary factors without consideration of social, political, or ideological interests. The Florida law, which also affects all other public retirement systems in the state, defines pecuniary factors as any factor that any system, board, and or fiduciary determines is expected to have a material effect on the risk or returns of an investment based on appropriate investment horizons consistent with the investment objectives and funding policy of the retirement system or plan. Florida Retirement Systems also must submit a comprehensive report detailing their governance policies, including information about their proxy voting, by December 15th of this year and by December 15th of every odd-numbered year thereafter. The Florida State Board of Administration will be required to submit its report to the Governor, the CFO, the Attorney General, President of the Senate, and the Speaker, of the House of Representatives of the state of Florida. Investment managers that work for Florida funds must include a disclaimer in any communications to companies in which the investment manager has invested public funds. That disclaimer must indicate that the company should not subordinate the interests of the company's shareholders to the interests of another entity or advocate for an entity other than the company's shareholders. If the investment manager fails to include this disclaimer, all of its contracts with state funds may be terminated. Investment managers also are required to certify that all investment decisions made on behalf of the state are based solely on pecuniary factors. If they fail to file that certification in a timely manner or file a certification that is materially false, the Attorney General of Florida may bring civil or administrative action. Press release Governor DeSantis said the bill is a blueprint for the nearly 20 states that have joined an alliance he leads to push back against the proliferation of ESG. On March 16th, the Republican governors of Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Iowa, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming signed a statement proposed by Governor DeSantis committing to pushing back against ESG considerations by taking actions such as having all state pension funds and state-controlled investments divest from investment firms that factor in ESG when making decisions. Commenting on the newly adopted Florida law Michael Littenberg, a partner at Rokes & Gray LLC and global head of the firm's ESG, CSR, and business human rights practice said, quote, it's still early days, but we expect the act will create significant uncertainty and friction between state pension funds and managers as both grapple with interpreting and operationalizing the act's requirements, especially given the intent of the act and the politically charged atmosphere in which it was adopted, unquote. That completes my monthly U.S. Corporate Governance Capital Markets Update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.